Dear Father, we thank you so much for this morning and that um, we're here today and, and Scripture is being read and taught and, and worship um, is happening and we're having communion with each other and with you. Lord, it is so easy for us to be able to do that. Uh, we understand that it's not as easy for brothers and sisters around the world, um, Lord, but we feel blessed that uh, we can all come together and worship you. I pray that we would give our hearts and our minds over to you right now, uh, Lord, and that you would just share with us what you want to hear. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name that I pray. Amen. We are called to carry out a task of utmost importance, and we are called to carry it out with absolute humility. That is the most important thing you have, the task God has given you. That is of utmost importance, and yet despite its importance, he has called you to carry it out in an incredibly humble way, with absolute humility. That's, that's part of what Galatians is all about. Um, it's not so much about us, and yet we are called to serve. We're called to do something with ourselves that honors him. Uh, there's a, a verse that John the Baptist in John 3.30, he says this. He says, he must become greater and I must become less. Uh, you might be familiar with that phrase. Other translations say he must increase and I must decrease. That's what we're talking about today. How, how do we increase fo- the God our Father and decrease ourselves? Uh, we are in, again, Galatians chapter 6, starting with verse 3. If you want to turn there, here's what verse 3 says. It says, for if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. He says, uh, it says, if you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. I love the bluntness of that translation. That's the reality. We are, we are not that important. Uh, and yet God has given us a task of utmost importance. So how do we interact with that? Uh, have you ever maybe thought you were more important than you actually are? Anyone in the room? Maybe you thought you were more of a big shot than what's actually reality. So when I was in elementary school, I had that mindset. Uh, I loved, I loved like being in plays. So I was always in my school plays. I thought it was fun. I was a really shy kid, but for some reason I loved being in the plays. And in third grade, that was when I hit it big. I was, I had a key role in the play Up on a Housetop, which is about, uh, Jewish chimney sweeps who celebrate Hanukkah and eat potato pancakes called latkes. Okay, it's a really good play. Uh, and I was, I was a key role. I was the lead chimney sweep. They called me Big Sweep. Okay, that was my name. And I, I got a ton of lines. I got to sing most of the songs. In fact, I even had a, like a solo. I was, I was excited. I loved it. I had a blast. And I let it get to my head. And I was like, man, I can't wait till fourth grade. Fourth grade comes along. <laughs> Our play is The Legend of the Little Lost Owl. It's about a little baby owl who gets kidnapped by a monkey, and the mother owl, for the duration of the story, is looking for her baby. Okay? This is art. Okay, people? Uh, and uh, I, I auditioned for so many of the roles. I wanted, I wanted to be the, the lion because he's like the king of the jungle, and he's, you know, in charge of everything, and he's important. Uh, but I also, I also auditioned for, like, the monkey. Even though he's the bad guy, I was like, oh, he's funny, and he's up in front a lot, so that's maybe a good role for me, because I'm, you know, I should be up center stage, right? So I auditioned for a bunch of roles, and the music teacher, she was in charge of the play, she comes to me and she says, Ian, I've already given away most of the roles, but how would you like to be the little lost owl? I was like, no way. 
And I got so excited. I was like, well, you know, it's the legend of the little lost owl. So it's the legend of my character. It's all about me. And I got so excited. I, I was like, I accept. And I went home. I told my parents, I was like, mom, dad, I'm starring in this play. All the relatives got to be here. All my siblings have to come. You have to record it. It's going to be great. It wasn't until we started practicing when I realized something that maybe I should have beforehand. So a key component of my character in this play is that he's lost, which meant that I was in one scene in the beginning and I was in one scene at the end. And I had one line in each. My line in the opening scene was this. It was, hoot, hoot, mama, help me. And then at the very end when I was found, I had another line. Hoot, hoot, mom, you found me. I nailed those lines, guys. I was good, okay? I know you're getting chills right now. <laughs> I, uh, but I was so upset. I was like, man, I should be up in front. I should be on the stage. I'm funny. I'm, I'm a good actor. I can sing, which that's not actually true. But, you know, try to tell fourth grade Ian that, okay? Uh, and I was so bummed, but I thought, you know what? There's always fifth grade. But fifth grade was even worse. We had a Christmas play, Elphis. It was about an elf that, you know, was like Elvis, okay, dressed like Elvis, and he was an outcast, but then at the end of the play, all the other elves come to love him and everything. I was so excited. So something about me when I was little, I actually loved Elvis Presley, and I knew a lot of his songs. So I was like, oh, this is the perfect role for me. I, I, can, I already know all the words to the songs we would sing. You know, it's, it's going to be great. I have to have the role. Obviously, I did not get the role. In fact, one of my friends got the role. My friend Malik, he got the role. And I didn't even really get a part. I got put in the choir, which is like, you know, at that age, it's like, oh, we have all these kids and no more parts. Let's put a riser on the stage and make them think their parents can hear them sing and all that stuff. So I was like on the back riser and I had to watch my friend Malik sing Blue Christmas in front of everybody and get all the accolades. And I was so jealous. Okay. And that's, that's silly. That's just, you know, elementary school age Ian, right? Getting mad about something. But in our lives, this is something we do, right? We think we're too important for the task that God has given us. And really, the scripture says we're deceiving ourselves. We're not that important. You know, my dad used to do this thing where he'd say, hey, Ian, you want to earn $5? And then he'd start listing all these tasks he expected me to do for five measly dollars. You know, I want you to mow the yard, trim the bushes. I want you to go wash my car. I want you to go clear out our basement. And I want you to do this and that. And I would say, no, I'm good. And he did what has got to be the ultimate dad move. And some of you dads in here might use this. He said, oh, good, so you'll do it for free, okay? Which I used to hate, but now I'm like, man, when I have kids, I am so using that. I can't wait. Uh, And it shows, it's kind of a a punch to the gut because you're like, oh, man, I should not have thought myself too important to do that because now I don't even get a reward. The reality is this, we're, we're not that important. And that's not meant to to have you, you know, beat up on yourself or think really poorly of yourself. It's all about just simply decreasing and becoming less so that the Jesus inside of us can increase and become greater. Here's the thing. The stakes are too high to win people to ourselves. This sounds maybe a little extreme, but it's true. There are a lot of people right now who are headed for death. And I'm not just talking physically like, yeah, you know, we'll all die at some point. But I'm talking in eternal terms. There are a lot of people right now, the way they live, uh, what they live for, they are headed for death. And the stakes are way too high for us to waste our time trying to just win people to who we are instead of who he is. Paul had a really good understanding of this. I'm going to jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 real quick. Starting in verse 12, this is what Paul says. He says, what I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul. 
or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. And Paul understands he was never committed to a cause, and he certainly wasn't committed to himself. He was committed to Jesus. And he wanted to preach nothing but the cross of Christ. He didn't want people to say, oh, yeah, I follow Paul. Because Paul, Paul's eventually going to let them down. The stakes, guys, are too high for us to get caught up in thinking that we're the ones who are going to save. You cannot save people, but you can serve people. Because the reality is this, we're going to let people down. When I was in sixth grade, there was an assignment we did on a sun, in Sunday school one morning. Our Sunday school teacher wanted us to write down all the people we would trust with our life. Like 100% trust with our life. I put three people I put Lloyd Johnson, that's my father. I put Deanie Johnson, that's my mother. And I put George W. Bush, okay? And I, I knew W. would run into a burning building to save me. No, uh, but those are the three people I said, those, I trust them with my life. And then the, the Sunday school teacher said, did anybody put Jesus on there? And we were all like, oh, man, the, the number one Sunday school answer. And I, I hadn't even put him on there. And, and the point was this, that... And it's as effective to sixth graders as it is to all of us right now. It's that Jesus really is the only one who we can fully trust and know that he will never let us down. My mother and father will let me down. Okay, the president of the United States will let us down. Our closest family and friends who we love and trust will let us down. Our pastors, our teachers, our coaches, they will let us down. Our bosses will let us down. Jesus is the only one who won't. So why would we try to win people to anybody else but him? I think about who I could be at my absolute best. And Ian, at his absolute best, could probably serve you quite well and do a lot of things for you. In fact, Ian, at his absolute best, might even die for you. But I know for a fact that Ian, at his absolute best, cannot come back to life for you. There's only one person who has done that, and that's Jesus. And because those stakes are high and because so many people are headed for an eternity without him, we've got to win them to him, not to ourselves. Because when we call people to follow us, we call them to follow somebody who's imperfect. This comes from that idea, again, that we deceive ourselves into thinking we're too important. You know, we're more important than everyone else, so they should follow me. And again, we are only fooling ourselves. We are not that important. Um, This is what Galatians 6.4 says. It says, let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. Again, I like the New Living Translation. It says, pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. And, And we talked again, last week we talked about envy, and that's kind of what comes to be whenever we start comparing ourselves. It it only leads to us envying other people or looking down on others and what they've done. We don't need to compare ourselves to anyone else. And it brings up a question I want us all to ask ourselves. It's this, where are we looking for our recognition? Because more often than not, it seems like I'm looking for my recognition in all the wrong places. I want it from, from other people. 
You know, I want, it, I want it from people in this room or I want it from my spouse or I want it from my friends or my coworkers. And that's not where I should be looking for it. Matthew 25, 23 echoes in my ears. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's God who we should be looking for, for our recognition, for our praise. We should be looking for him. We should want that well done, good and faithful servant. And that's the way that we can take pride in what we have done. And when we find our recognition, when we desire God's recognition above all else, we don't have to compare ourselves to other people. And we can take pride in what he has called us to and what he has called us to alone. We don't need to worry about that. Well done, good and faithful servant. Galatians 6.5, it says this. For each person will have to carry his own load. NLT says, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. The reality is this. How we live, that determines who we lead other people to. How we live determines who we lead others to. So again, if we think that we're something when we're actually nothing, we lead people to ourselves and they're ultimately let down. But if we live our lives understanding what God has done for us, then we can lead them to him. And that's important because, again, these people, they need somebody who's going to save them, and it can't be us. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, my sister, her, my older sister, her car broke down a few miles from our house, and my dad was at work, so my mom was just like, okay, Ian, take your brother, and you guys go fix her car, which is hilarious because, like, my brother and I don't know anything about cars. We just don't. You know, I walk into the auto shop, and the guy behind the desk says, what's the problem? And I feel like personally attacked. I'm like, well, no, that's your job. You tell me what the problem is. I don't know. I make up things. I'm like, oh, there's a crack in the exhaust gasket, you know, and that sounds like car stuff, right? I don't know. I'm just saying words. And so we don't know anything. So we get there and we, you know, we open up my sister's hood and my brother and I do the thing where like we stand there and we nod and we point to different things because it makes people driving past think, oh, they know what they're doing. And finally, after several minutes, we're like, hey, Lexi, we could stay out here and we could point at more things, but honestly, we probably just need to call dad because he's the one who's going to be able to help you. And in the same way, you know, when dealing with other people, there's certain things we can do. We can serve them, but if we want to save them, then we just have to call on our father because he's the one who can help them. How we live determines who we lead others to. It makes me think of the 12 apostles. Uh, You know, when you think about the ministry, they did their best ministry was actually done after the cross. Okay, after Jesus went up to heaven, you know, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they did incredible things. They preached the gospel with boldness, um, without hindrance. They, they healed people. They did miracles. They led revivals. Um, they did their best ministry after the cross. Now, I've, I watch, like, as a guy, I watch, like, a lot of war movies, I guess. So I've seen a lot of battle scenes. We like that stuff, you know. Gets our blood going and everything. And in all like the Bravehearts and the Gladiators and all those movies, I, it always seems like the strategy is when you're going to battle, you, you try to kill the other army's leader. Okay? Because if you, if you kill their leader, then they don't know what to do anymore. They don't have the person directing them and giving orders, the one who has all the strategy. So they, you know, they, they run away or retreat or they surrender. That seems to typically be the best thing you can do is, hey, let's try to kill their leader. So I imagine looking at the 12 disciples through the eyes of someone else in those days, watching them do all these things, thinking, man, how can they live this way? Their leader, I've I've heard that their leader was killed. He was crucified. He's not here anymore. How could they be doing this even still? And the reason they could is, you guys know this, because their leader was not dead. 
their leader was alive. And, and we know when people look at us and say, how can you live this way? Then there's so many bad things happening because our leader is alive right now. And that should, that should determine how we live. You know, not, not anything else but the fact that we believe as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if we believe he rose from the dead, that should drastically change the way that we live. It should take away all these ideas that we're too important to do anything. You know, if our, if our leader uh, was humble enough to be put on a cross and make himself nothing, he emptied himself, like Dusty talked about last week, pursuing emptiness. He emptied himself and went to a death on a cross. Then surely we can realize that we're deceiving ourselves when we think we're too important. We're just fooling ourselves. We can serve and we can live like Jesus because if we live like Jesus, that's who we lead other people to. And it takes a lot of pressure off of us. You know, we we talk about humility all the time and we do want to be humble. Uh, I remember when I was a really little kid, I went to a church of Christ, so we sang a cappella. And there's this really this song that sounds really cool, a cappella, but it's that song that some of you might know. Uh, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, anybody? And he will lift you up. I'm leading worship next week, book it. I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I did. I loved that song as a kid, but it was just because I thought it sounded cool. But now I'm older and I actually listen to it. And it's like, oh yeah, that's exactly what scripture teaches us, that... If we humble ourselves in God's sight, that's when we're lifted up. It's this crazy paradox, you know, where we're in, in lowering ourselves, that's where we actually find contentment in our value. By decreasing and becoming less, we become even more firm in our belief of who God says we are. We understand that we are valuable to Him by having absolute humility despite the important task we're carrying out. And so that's why I, I want to just share this thought. The best way to remember who you are is to remember who God is. Because God has that final say on who you are. So when you think you're too important, he says, no, that's not true. You're deceiving yourself. You're not that important. But even when you say, man, I'm not good. I'm not worth anything. Jesus comes in again and says, no, that's not true either. You are worth something. You are my servant. The best way to remember who you are is to remember who God is. I want to tell a story. Um, me and my wife Bethany and then Amy Drake, we were blessed to, a few weeks ago, lead a group of students to Diamond Willow Ministries in Fort Thompson, South Dakota. So if you participated in our M&M Tube fundraiser with the quarters, that's what you were funding. So first of all, thank you very much. We had an overwhelming response to that and, and it made things a lot easier for our students to be able to go. So thank you so much. Um, but we went in uh, Fort Thompson's on an Indian reservation for the Lakota people, um, this Indian tribe, and they live in just really rough conditions, really poor living conditions. Uh, we had the opportunity to, with Diamond Willow, put on a kids camp. That's what they do during the summer. So all summer long, they do different kids camps. It's really similar to what we do for VBS here. Uh, we got to go help out with kindergarten through second grade boys, which was a blast. You know, that's such a fun age. Uh, and, and our students, we got, we got to do all sorts of things. We got to lead games, and we got to do crafts, and we got to worship with them and teach them lessons. Uh, we had a student come along who uh, church wasn't necessarily a consistent part of his life growing up. So uh, the stories that we've all heard uh, since we were little in Sunday school, the David and Goliaths and the parables and all those things, those weren't necessarily something that he knew because nobody ever told him. Um, he's on fire for Jesus. He just was never taught those things. 
Uh, and as God would have it, the very first day of the camp, he was supposed to teach a lesson. So he's, he's a little bit nervous, you know, and, and so I sat down with him that morning and we kind of went over the stories he was supposed to teach on and, okay, what do these mean? What's Jesus trying to say and how can we teach this to second graders? Uh, when another man came over and sat down next to us. Now this man, he was Native American. He was actually one of the Lakota people. And he just sat down, didn't say a word. He just smiled at us. And we weren't being unfriendly, but, you know, we were talking about our lesson. Um, and the, the student, he said something along the lines of, you know, I just don't really feel qualified to do this. You know, I've never taught before. That's when the man sitting next to us opened his mouth. His name uh, was Dennis, and he's a preacher. In fact, he preaches often at Diamond Willow, um, and he lives out there on the reservation. And Dennis started telling us his story. And he started talking about something he used to go to called a Sundance. Sundances were this event that the Lakota people would go to, um, and there was a, a ritual that took place there. It's kind of gruesome, so I apologize. It's a little bit graphic, but uh, it was all about testing their ability to suffer and endure through suffering. And by doing that, they, you know, they earned respect and honor and all those things. So there was a lot of accolades in being able to endure agony and suffering. And so they would take eagle talons, and they would pierce your wrists right here with these eagle talons on both sides. And these eagle talons were attached to tree branches, so they pull back on the branches of this tree, and they'd spread out like this. And you were supposed to see how long you could endure that agony. The idea was if, if your skin ripped pretty early on and you fell down, that was, you know, the spirits kind of, you know, honoring you and saying, okay, yeah, we're good with you. you but but if, if your skin didn't break, you were expected to stay up there as long as you could and endure as long as you could. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And... Um, so Dennis told us about that, and I was like, wow, that's crazy. But he told us this, not just the first time he heard that Jesus went to the cross for us, but how he felt the first time he actually saw an image of it. He actually saw a picture of a man up like this, standing there and suffering, not for his own glory or his own self, but for the good of everybody. And that changed his life. And so now he goes around and he tells people, all that suffering you're trying to do because you think you're so important, guess what? Somebody already did that for you. And you don't have to do that anymore. And that was pretty powerful. And it makes me remember this. Oh, yeah, <coughs> we're not that important, which means it's not on me to save everybody because I can't. If I think it's on me to save everybody, I'm deceiving myself. I think that I'm too important and I'm really not that important. But when we remember what Jesus has already done, then instead of trying to save people, we can simply serve them and lead them to the one who can save them. Just like Dennis started doing. And because of that, not only did he have confidence, but then our student took confidence and said, oh yeah, I don't have to put this pressure on myself. It's going to be okay. Um, and he did a great job teaching. He, he was fantastic at it. It was a cool experience, and it just reminds me, you know, we do put that pressure on ourselves. We, we put it on ourselves because we know that there are people who are headed for death, like we talked about, and we should have utmost confidence, but not in ourselves, but in God's ability to save them, and if we can look like him, and if we can decrease so that the Jesus in us increases, that's when we'll be able to lead others to him. So my challenge for all of us, myself included, is let's just stop deceiving ourselves, Let's stop saying that we're something when really we're actually nothing compared to who God is. We are not that important, but we serve the one who is and can do anything. Let's pray. 
God, we love you so much, and we are honored that while you save people, you have equipped us to serve people. Lord, we thank you so much for reminding us, sometimes in very humbling ways, that when we think we're something, we're actually not really anything. And God, that doesn't mean that we should beat ourselves up. That means we should just keep pointing to how great you are. God, you love us and you call us not to think less of ourselves, but just to spend less time with ourselves on our mind, instead looking to see how we can serve other people. God, let us remember who you are and what you've called us to, and let us never forget that if we are a follower of Jesus, that means that we should always be ready to serve. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.
But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding of his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jennifer. It is pretty easy to lose God. Luke is the only gospel writer to include a story from Jesus' childhood. No other gospel writer includes anything about Jesus from the time he is a small child to the time he starts his ministry when he is about 30 years old. And only Luke includes a story in the, in, about Jesus' childhood. And in this text, this story that he chooses to include, he is 12. Jesus is 12. Presumably, Luke wrote because he was able to sit down with eyewitnesses, sit down with people who were really in these shoes and write from what they told him. So we assume that he sat down with Mary, Jesus' mother, and he said, tell me everything. And Mary would have told him all the stories that she could recollect, all the stories of Jesus and his youth. And Luke decides to take this one. Why this one? Well, it tells us a lot about Jesus, and it gives us some hints about his mission, even though he's 12. And so let's start this way. The text says that Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph and Mary were devout Jews, and they were headed up to the Passover feast. There were three feasts that all the Jewish people were uh, expected to attend. The Passover was one, the Pentecost feast was another, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three happened in Jerusalem. And all three were kind of required, but not everybody could afford to go to all three. And so if you only could choose one, it was always the Passover. The Passover was a week-long feast. It was kind of this national pride. It was kind of Fourth of July mixed in with a great family reunion with God at the center of everything that they did. And so Joseph packed up the minivan. He loaded all of his you know, kids, all of his family into... Uh, into the van and they get to Jerusalem and they spend this week with family and friends and they keep God at the center. They do everything that they're supposed to do on Passover. And then after about a week, they start heading home. And just one problem, they get about a day's journey away and they start looking around and guess what? No, Jesus. Jesus is nowhere. He's missing. Wait a minute. He's not with you? I thought he was with you. No, he's not with me. I thought he was with you. Where where in the world? And there's panic. And uh, we're told Joseph and Mary are greatly distressed in the text. They're in pain. And you can understand that if you've ever had a lost kid, right? The first thing we see in the text is a lost Jesus. A lost Jesus. And probably the first question that anybody has about this little story when they read it is, how in the world do you lose a kid? 
<laughs> in those days, people traveled, especially to feasts like this, to Jerusalem, in really big groups. Uh, families would have traveled together. Whole villages might have traveled together, and they would keep an eye on each other and everyone else's children. And one of the things that they did was the women and children would set the pace up front so that the pace wasn't too fast. And the men and the younger men would have stayed in the back. And what age is Jesus again? Twelve. That puts him right in the middle, right? And so there are times that he could have been up with the women and children. There are times that he could have been back with the men. And Mary thought he's one place and Joseph thinks he's another. And maybe both of them think, oh, he's with some other family. And that's how you lose a kid. That's a different way, right? It's not, not like we're loading up for a family vacation and we leave a kid at the gas station. Anyone? <laughs> when you think about that, Mary and Joseph seem like superstar compar- parents compared to some of, some of us. I, I, was in, I was in at least three different groups this last week, and uh, groups of people, and I asked them, because we, you know this was the story this week, I said, uh, give me a time that either you were a kid and were lost, or give me a time where you were in charge of a kid and you, you lost a kid. And I had teachers say, oh yeah. There's this one time we were on this trip and this kid, man, and it was a whole fiasco. And I had a grandparent say, yeah, my grandchild came over and couldn't find him. And, and uh, I had uh, moms and dads. There was nobody that was, that was without a story. Everybody's had a time where they've lost a kid or they've been lost. Um, Jamie is our ministry administrator. And uh, she told a story on her husband, Bob. And uh, I will relate it to you today and get Bob in trouble uh, because it's not a stellar day for Bob. Way back when, uh, their oldest, Kyle, was maybe kindergarten, first grade. And he was, uh, Bob was playing softball at the time, so they played over on the fields over here at the college. And he decided to take Kyle with him because there's a playground over there. And so Kyle was playing in the playground, Bob's playing softball, and of course, you know, it's, it's a great game and, you know, he makes the winning play or whatever. And, and uh, he's so excited, he gets in the car and he goes home and, and he bursts through the door and he tells Jamie about this monumental hit that he had and the great way that he won the game. And she said, that's wonderful, honey. Where's my son? I will be right back. (laughs) And uh, he headed out here, obviously frantic, panicked, right? He got there and no Kyle. Kyle is gone. In the meantime, Kyle has decided nobody's here. Everybody left me. I guess I need to walk home. Little kindergarten, first grader. They lived over in uh, about the 700 block of Crawford or Judson, I think, somewhere in there. Okay, so that's quite a hike for a kindergarten first grader. He found Dairy Queen somehow, <laughs> which, is, which is now the butcher block, but it used to be Dairy Queen. And he knew that if he found Dairy Queen and he went a certain direction from Dairy Queen, that he would stumble onto some houses that eventually that he would recognize. And uh, I tell you what, uh, Jamie said during that trip where they had lost Kyle, this was before cell phones. So they're trying to, you know, call one another from pay phones and the home phone and the home phone's tied up because Jamie's calling the prayer chain and the prayer chain is all activated. And, and uh, Ron Billiard, one of our elders, was even there on their, on their front porch praying for, you know, that they would find Kyle. It was a whole deal. And let's just say it wasn't a great day for Bob, okay? <laughs> and 
It's one thing, no offense to Kyle, no offense to Bob and Jamie, it's one thing to lose a kid in Fort Scott, America, right? But to lose the Son of God. Think about how Mary and Joseph would have been feeling. They would have been beating themselves up, right? They would have been blaming themselves. They're their own worst critics. And the, 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 the way you lose the Son of God is the way you lose any other kid. You get distracted. Bob was thinking of the great play. Bob was thinking of the dramatic way that they won the game. Bob was thinking of the, you know, the thing that that guy said to him and what he said back. And, and all of a sudden he's at home and he's missing a kid. We get distracted. And it's not just Mary and Joseph that get distracted and lose the Son of God. We get distracted, right? And we lose the Son of God sometimes. It's difficult to find Jesus when we are distracted. Sometimes it's the world that distracts us, those forces that pull us away from God and His will and His kingdom. Sometimes it's just the busyness of life that distracts us. We have all of these things that we try to pack into the day and we come to the end of it and we realize, oh, God wasn't a part of the day. Sometimes we get distracted even by the good things that we can do. We do stuff for God. We do ministry for God. But we get so busy doing those good things for God that we forget that God is the reason we're doing these things in the first place. And we miss Him. We lose Jesus. Mary and Joseph were doing what faithful and devout Jewish people did. They were going to Jerusalem to observe this religious festival. And in in the middle of this religious pilgrimage that is designed to refocus people on God, they lose God. It's possible. So the question is, what do we do when we lose God? And I want you to take a look at what, just first, what Joseph and Mary do. It's something pretty instinctual. They head back to Jerusalem. Bob head back, headed back to the softball fields, right? The backstory here is that Mary and Joseph actually go back to the beginning. We could say that because the temple was where Mary and Joseph, Jerusalem itself was where Mary and Joseph took Jesus when he was first born to dedicate him to God. And that's pretty good advice for us too, to go back to the beginning. And there are two possible ways that we can go back to the beginning. There's one blank in your, in your bulletin. I'm going to give you two options for that blank. You just pick the one that applies to you today. The first word we could write there is repent. Repent. If there's a biblical concept for going back to the beginning, it would be this word, repentance. Repentance is all about going back. It's about turning around and going a different way. It's about going back to where we started, back to the basics of faith. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Going back to that. To say, you know what, God, I've been distracted by all of this other stuff, but I'm going back to where I started. I believe that life is in you and not in any of these other things. So I'm going to put you in the center of everything that I do. There's a famous statement in the history of the church that says all of Christian life is repentance. The thing that we fall into, the trap, is that when we throw out this word repentance, a lot of us, a lot of us hear that word and we think failure. But I need you to think training when you hear that word. Repentance isn't about failing. Repentance is about training. Repentance is about getting up and saying, God, I commit this day all over to you again, and hopefully I'm a little better today than I was yesterday. That's what repentance is about. That's why it's every day. That's why all of Christian life is about repentance. So the other option for that blank is church. Church. 
Joseph and Mary go back to where they started. And when Jesus was born, they go to the temple. They dedicate him to God. That was the right thing to do according to the law. And when they lose him 12 years later, ironically, they find him in the very place where they started. So we could ask ourselves that same question. How about us? When we lose Jesus, where do we go? Maybe we should go back to the beginning. So tell me, go back to the beginning in your mind. How did you learn about Jesus? How did you learn about the saving grace of Jesus? Let me jog your memory and remind you of probably how you didn't learn of the saving grace of Jesus. You didn't learn it from a building. Oh, these, these buildings are great. Community Christian Church is a great place. It's a great building. But it's not the church. The church is God's people, right? And if you go back to the beginning and you think about how you were given this message of the saving grace of Jesus, it always involved a person. It was a person saying to you, here's what Jesus meant to me. Here's what Jesus has done in my life. I think he can be your savior too. It always goes back to a person and that's the church. And when we lose God, the odds are well overwhelming that we'll be able to find him again in the pew, right? In the communion table. We'll be able to find him again in an old hymn or maybe a new song. Why? Because the other people who are trying to find him also are there with us. That's how the church is supposed to work. And so when we lose Jesus, go back to the beginning. Maybe we should do both. Maybe we should repent. And maybe we should go back to his people, the church. And so Mary and Joseph go back. They go back to the beginning. It took them a day to return to the city, Jerusalem. It probably took them another day to find Jesus. And so they are three days in at this point. And after searching, what they find is a learning Jesus, a learning Jesus. He's found in the temple. And in the temple, in some corner of it, he's in the middle of a circle. And there are Jewish teachers and rabbis. And he is part of that circle and he is asking them questions and he is listening to their answers. And the text says that the teachers are amazed at both his questions and his answers. They are thunderstruck by the deep comprehension that this 12-year-old Jewish boy is displaying. He's not the normal uh, kid at Hebrew school, right? Okay. And um, the thing that we need to avoid here as we picture this in our minds, we need to avoid this thought that the little boy Jesus is sitting around straightening out his elders, like pointing a finger, straightening out the teachers of the law and the rabbis. That's not what's happening here. The text does not say anything like that. It just says he was listening and asking questions. And that fits. Why? Because God is love and love is listening. Love is listening. And so the teachers and the rabbis are amazed. And if we were writing this, we would write it this way. They were blown away. There was somebody else that stumbled upon that scene, and they were also blown away. It was not the rabbis and teachers. It was Mary and Joseph. And they are blown away in a little different sense. This is mom who has lost her son, and she's blown away in a fire coming out of my eye sockets kind of way. 
right? And now I finally found you, and what the heck are you doing to me? How can you do this to me, right? And dad is with her, and he just wants mom to get her son back, so she's not, you know, uh, frantic. And um, so the rabbis are blown away by what they hear, and Mary and Joseph are blown away by what they see. And this frightened, panicked, upset mom says what a mom would say in verse 48. Why have you done this to us? There's a little bit of uh, mom guilt and shame there put on like only moms can do. And then she says, after all we've done for you, this is how you repay us, right? Nobody has a mom like that, right? She saves her deepest knife for last. She says, your father and I have been looking for you. It's kind of the first century equivalent to wait, just wait till your father gets home. That, that's what's going on here. And that's interesting because Jesus latches on to that phrase, your father. And that's why I'm making a big deal of it. And he begins in verse 49. He says, why are you looking for me? There's no issue here. And he says, you should know who I am. You should know that I must be, or you should know that it is necessary for me to be about my father's, and depending on your translation, it says uh, my father's business or my father's house or my, my father's things. Those, that word, whatever it is in your translation, is not in the Greek text. The Greek literally reads, do not you know that in the father of me I must be? In other words, it wasn't the temple that was the thing. It was God. The temple isn't the important part. God is the important part. Jesus is emphatic. I've got to be about learning about my Father. I've got to know God who is in heaven because He is my Father, and this is my chance to do so. And in this this one sentence, Jesus makes this distinction between Joseph, who is His adopted Father, and God in heaven, who is His real, true Father. At age 13... Every Jewish boy goes through um, a celebration where he is introduced to the full responsibilities of adulthood. And you probably know, you've probably heard about what that celebration is and what it's called. It's called a bar mitzvah. Yes. Bar mitzvah literally means son of the commandment. And when a, when a Jewish boy turns 13, he goes through this bar mitzvah so that he can literally from then on become a son of the commandment. And from that point on, the full responsibilities of the law that, gave Moses, that God gave Moses are upon his shoulders. And he is now officially an adult. It's odd that we never look back at the life of Jesus and think about him having a bar mitzvah. But surely he did. But Luke doesn't include that story. He includes this one. And it's a year before that would have happened. He's 12, right? And the thing that we need to understand is that for the year prior to the bar mitzvah, that there was something that a Jewish father would do to prepare his son for that day when he was 13 and he would become a son of the commandment. The Jewish fathers would prepare their sons for that step that was coming. And so Joseph, no doubt, has been out the, at this with Jesus. So it was an intense time of, of training and focus. And Joseph would have said to Jesus, here's how to be a man. 
and here's what it means to work, and here's how, what it means to follow God. Here's what it means to pray. Jesus probably learned more about carpentry that year than any year, probably more about life that year than any year he had so far, probably more about God than any other year. And so taking Jesus on this trip to the Passover, to this celebration, to the temple at age 12 would have been most appropriate. He would have said, this is the temple, son. And this is why we go to the temple. And this is what the temple means. And this is the Passover. And this is what the Passover means. And this is what the Passover lamb means. And this is who we are as a people of God. And this intense mentoring happened the whole year when they were 12. And maybe we should pause there and just ask, Dads, are you that? Are you being intentional with your sons? Are you saying, you have what it takes? Here's how to navigate life. Here's how to be a man. Dads, are you being intentional with your daughters? You're beautiful. I love you. You're the princess of the world. And here's how to navigate life. And here's how to be steered back to the only person that can really give us life at the end of the day, Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in life, You'll always find life in Him. Are, you, are we intentional about steering our kids in that direction? And so it was a normal thing for Jewish dads to do for their sons. And that has to make us pause. Because Mary says, your father and I, and he, she's meeting Joseph, were distressed. We were looking for you. And Jesus responds this way. You should know I'm here on earth for my real father. One of the other unusual things that the Passover would have brought about was a gathering of the greatest rabbis and teachers and theologians in the Jewish world. They would have all descended on Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And these scholars would have no doubt assembled at the temple and they would have uh, gathered together to teach and discuss great truths among themselves. Uh, Think about it as a conference, right, that we would go to. It was kind of that feel. And so we can imagine Jesus stumbling into that and one of the, you know, he's reading through the program. One of the breakout sessions is Messiah. You know, let's talk about the Messiah. And he's like, oh, that's me. I should probably go to that. Even though they didn't ask me to speak, I'm kind of bummed. But so he would go and uh, he is this 12-year-old kid, but he's the Messiah. He is unknown to any of these rabbis, these great teachers, but he is observe, uh, absorbing and learning infinitely more than he ever could in Nazareth and infinitely more than even Joseph could have ever taught him. And so here's, here's the thought. And this... Full disclosure here, this is, this is conjecture a little bit. We're reading between the lines here, but it's a guess, but it makes sense. And I think Jesus actually even does hint at it. What if in the 12-year-old life of Jesus, God, his heavenly father, was doing the same thing that his earthly father was trying to do? What if God, his real father, is taking that 12th year and being intensely strategic about it, focusing on Jesus on becoming that son of the commandment. What if God himself is teaching Jesus? What if Joseph, as he's walking around Jerusalem, is teaching Jesus, and yet God is coming behind that teaching and going a million levels deeper? What if Joseph is saying, 
This is the temple. And this is why we worship. And this is what we do here. And this is how we relate to God. And God, the true Father, comes in behind that teaching and says, You are the temple. You're the real temple that's going to destroy this one, to make it obsolete. What if Joseph is walking around Jerusalem and saying, hey, there's history on these streets. King David walked on these streets and he turned all of the history of Israel. And the real Father God is coming in behind that and saying, Jesus, you also will walk on these streets and all of history will, will pivot because of what you're going to do on these streets. But it will mean that you'll carry a cross as you walk on them. And almost surely, uh, Joseph would have led his family through the Passover meal. And the, the culmination of that Passover meal was the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb was... Uh, a, a reference to what happened in Egypt where the lamb's blood was put on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over the Israelite people so that none of their firstborn would die. And Joseph did a great job of leading his family through that remembrance. And what if God came in behind and said to Jesus, see that lamb? You are that lamb. There's another lamb that has to die so that other people will live even though they die and you are that lamb. God is steering Jesus, being intentional to make the most of an opportunity. And that makes sense, right? The temple makes sense. And so he's learning. And he's learning really well from the Father. Look at verse 50. He's saying things about God no one gets. He's talking in ways no one talks. He's saying, my father, my father, over and over. And no one talks like that. No one, that's a radical, radical concept. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books and only 14 times is God referred to as father. And every one of those times, it is in reference to a nation, like he is the father of the Jewish nation, not never about individuals. He's never a father to individuals. And yet Jesus comes on the scene, even at verse 12, or age 12, and he says, I love my father. It's my father. That's why I'm here. And he's saying it in reference to daddy. He's, he's saying, my father is so relatable to me. My God is so relatable to me. He's like a daddy that I could crawl crawl up in his lap and say anything to, share anything with. And Luke is telling us here that Jesus had a relationship to God unlike anyone else ever. Jesus is going to make it possible for you and I to have that kind of relationship with God. And there is no way at this point that anybody understands that. The rabbis, the teachers, they're confused. They're blown away. His parents, Jesus, Joseph... And Mary, they're confused, they're bewildered, they're blown away. Nothing has changed. Jesus still confounds us today. He doesn't fit into the boxes that we kind of create for God and say, this is how God should be. This is what God should do. Jesus does not fit into those norms. He always brings new learning into our lives, new paradigms. And I can't fit him because it's difficult to fit Jesus when he brings the unexpected. And that's what we see at every turn. He confounds the experts by talking about God in ways they've never thought of. He does that to us. Things that don't fit how we think God should be. We look around at our world and it's confusing to us when good people face horrible circumstances. Anybody? Yeah. 
That's confusing. God, that doesn't fit with a loving God. We look around our world and it's confusing to us that he says he is just. God says, I am a just God. And yet we look around and we see evil people ruling the day. How does that work? That doesn't fit in my box of what God should do and what God should be about. It's confusing to us that he loves us, but he still lets us go through storms. We don't get that. That doesn't fit the God that we want. It's confusing to us when God says there's a point to all suffering. And yet when we look around, all we can see is seemingly pointless suffering. Anybody read about Branson this week? Man, why God? That doesn't fit after all we've done for you. We get this in return and we want to use Mary's words in times like these. What are Mary's words? How can you treat me like this? This isn't what God should be about. It's confusing. It's mystifying. It's painful. It's disheartening. And it summons a crucial question. And this question is the hinge point. If we get it right, then we're good. If we get it wrong, we are lost. And the question is, why should I trust a God who doesn't fit into the box that I want to create? The God that doesn't fit what I think God should be or do. Why should I trust him? And some people in our world just immediately say, I can't trust him. I can't trust a God like that. I won't trust a God like that. Thank you very much. I'm going to move on to something else. But in this text, I want, I want to show you why we can. Why we can trust a God who doesn't fit our concept of what a God should be. It's because we see, number three in this text, a loving Jesus. A loving Jesus. It's in the very first red words recorded from the lips of Jesus. Some of you have old school and, uh, you know, the words of Jesus are in red. These are the very first ones. He's 12 years old. He says, why are you looking for me? Don't you know who I am? It is necessary that I be in my father's house. And there's a clear tension between who his real father is and who his adopted father is. And there's a huge theological bomb here because Joseph might be an adoptive father, but make no mistake, I am not Joseph's son. I am God's son. I am the son of God. And here in the first recorded words of Jesus, Jesus understands clearly who he is. Is. Now think about what that means. I want you to do so by going back to your 12-year-old self. Go back to when you were 12 years old. What were you wearing? <laughs> what was your hair like? Who were you with? What issues did you have with the authority figures in your life? What issues did you have with your parents that they just didn't get, right? And what 12-year-old on the planet wouldn't want to be God's son. Every teenager everywhere would love this kind of power. One of the phrases I would rattle off as a parent when my kids kind of got out of bounds and they tried to rule a little more than they should in our house, I would say something along these lines, God put big people with little people for a reason and I'm big and you're small and one day that will change but it's not today so you're going to do what I tell you to do, right? Um, when you're big, you can make the rules, but that's how it works. But I want you to think about trying to say that to Jesus. Joseph trying to say, hey, I'm the big person here and you are, oh, wait a minute, you're actually bigger. 
wait a minute, I'm the older person, the wiser person here, and you're just, oh, wait a minute, you're actually older than I am and infinitely wiser than me. I'm the authority here and you're going to, wait a minute, you made everything that there is to make. You made everything that we see. And Jesus is the only human being ever to be able to say to his parents, listen to me because I really am the authority. I made everything that you see. And I will be making decisions around here because I'm older than you. My way goes because I'm actually really in control of everything. That's where Jesus was. And so what you have here in a 12-year-old Jesus is a glimpse that Jesus knew who he was and yet without missing a beat, he also knew what he was to do. The phrase, I must be in my father's house could also be, it is necessary. And it has a parallel later in the book of Luke. At the end of the Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, he will include a story and he will use this phrase again. Jesus will, it's in red letters there too. There are two guys that have just ironically come from the Passover feast. And it's the very Passover feast where Jesus has been hung on a cross and crucified. And they have looked at him as Savior and the hope of all Israel. And now he is dead. He's hanging on a cross. And they're walking away from Jerusalem. And they have no hope. They are disheartened. And all of a sudden, a third traveler pops in and starts walking with them. They don't know it, but it's Jesus. It's resurrected Jesus. And they start telling this newcomer, What has happened in Jerusalem as if he didn't know? Did you hear what happened? All hope is lost. Our Savior, Jesus, was hung on a cross. And he was, we banked everything on him. And now there's nothing left. We're not sure what to do. And Jesus chimes in. They still don't know it's him. But he says, oh, foolish people. (laughs) You're so slow. And he says this, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to these two guys in all the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, all the things about himself and what it was necessary that he do. And so in chapter 2, you have mom and dad, it is necessary that I be about my father. And in chapter 24, you have guys, it is necessary that the Christ should die this way. And what we see here, even at the beginning in 12-year-old Jesus, is that he knew who he was, but he also knew exactly what he was to do. He was God in the flesh. He was creator of everything, maker of the very parents that were in front of him, infinite power behind this face full of pimples. And yet, what does it say in verse 51? It says that the word of life, the logos, the one who spoke everything into existence, went home. And what's the word? Submitted. Maybe your translation says, obeyed the parents that he had made. And there it is. That's why you should trust. That's why you should trust this God. Because he didn't have to, but he did it anyway. And maybe that's why Luke chose uh, chose this story. Because at the end of the tale, Jesus will be in the same spot. He doesn't have to hang on a cross, but he does it anyway. He doesn't have to obey, but he does it anyway. And this time his obedience is not to earthly parents. It's to his heavenly father. 
And he says, it is necessary that I hang on a cross so that others can live. It is necessary that I obey so that others could find the obedience to God that they can never live up to. And that's love. Love is to be in a position where nothing is required of us, and yet we do it anyway for the sake of someone else. And that's, that's a superhero, right? That's Jesus. That's a God worthy of my trust. And the Creator loved me when there was no reason to, and it's so difficult to forget Jesus when He obeys the Father for me, especially knowing what that meant. Father, I thank You that You have...